All right, welcome back, everybody. Hour number two is upon us, and we're glad you're staying with us here for this big hour because, yeah, that's what we're going to do. We're going to crank it up for you. Um, We talk about a lot of great topics on the program. The first hour was dedicated to the Jesus Revolution, some of its actual history and sort of a critique of the movie. And we're about to be joined with Drew McKissick, who's chairman of the South Carolina Republican Party. And now the co-chairman, I believe is the proper title, of the National Republican Party, the RNC. And so we're going to talk to him about what's going on in South Carolina, what the future looks like, um, what it looks like, how many presidential candidates that are heating up or not heating up. we got reorg coming up. we just got a lot of stuff to talk about. So without further ado, we welcome Drew McKissick to the program. Good morning, sir. Good morning. How are you this morning? I'm doing just fine, and I hope you are. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, um, I guess the big things that are on the agenda today for us to talk about, first of all, let's talk about the legislature um, in South Carolina, where we are. Uh, We're heading into March. Uh, We've got uh, a little over a month under our belt going into the second month, I guess. And uh, Mm -hmm. so how would you characterize the success or failure or the progress or lack thereof of the legislature so far? Good so far. I mean, obviously, you know, we've seen, uh, I know what, what you've been, uh, uh, I would say, knee-deep in, and that's the, uh, the issue of uh, uh, the Human Life Protection Act passed over in the House. Uh, and it was, you know, just a big margin that we were able to see there, which I thought was tremendous. I think, it, I'm, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that might have actually been the biggest margin for a pro-life bill that we've had in the legislature, at least that I can recall. Uh, I think it was 83 to 31. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, it was overwhelming. And, yeah, which is a great margin. Huh? Yeah, it was overwhelming. And I think you're right. I, I, yeah. I don't remember a pro-life bill having that kind of support before. So that was amazing. And, and plus, when you consider just the uh, uh, the scope of it, uh, you know, obviously um, recognizing life begins at conception, but then, you know, of course, with the exceptions uh, that have, uh, we've talked about and also thinking about correcting, you know, what the Supreme Court did, the mistake that they made here in South Carolina, and uh, looking ahead to some of the objections that senators had in the last session. Uh, you know, I think we're we're in a good position. House has made a great statement in terms of where it stands on life, and we've seen a big move on uh, constitutional carry. I've seen that pass over in the House. Uh, we've seen uh, movement on school choice legislation, movement on certificate of need. Uh, you know, so I think all around the House and the Senate have been getting off to a great start. Uh, as you point out, we're you know basically a month in, uh, and of course, you know, when we get the halfway mark, uh, everything gets you know bogged down with the budget uh, to get that out the door, and then they sort of pick up after uh, a halftime, if you will, when the budget issues are hopefully resolved. Right. Uh, but so far, I'm hopeful. I think we're in a good position. Well, I, I'm, I, um, I want to join you in your optimism because um, I, <laughs> I kind of I like to be an optimistic guy, but unfortunately, I, just, I, I see an impasse between the Senate and the House when it comes to protecting life. I just don't know how we're going to get by it. Uh, you've got, you know, the, the Senate is not interested, I don't think, in passing the Human Life Protection Act, at least about six or seven Republican senators over there, uh, which is enough to hold it up perpetually, uh, don't have any interest in it. And then 
on the House side, uh, there, you know, the Senate passed the heartbeat bill with some revisions um, uh, that were based on mainly comments that were made by Justice Few when they ruled that the heartbeat bill was unconstitutional. And so that bill is over in the House, and there's no appetite in the House to pass it. So if, to even get to a conference committee, somebody's got to pass something. And wow. it, it doesn't seem that – I mean, right now we're trying to convince senators. Uh, we're trying to convince people in the districts where senators are that are reluctant that this is important and to let their senators know. And Absolutely. we're we're emphasizing over and over – I mean, there are people who communicate with our legislators in ways that are just terrible, and that's never going to accomplish anything. We we have to be we we have to be persuasive with our arguments, but filled with grace in the way that we treat each other. I mean, I just I, I can't emphasize that enough. But hope maybe um, some of these senators will uh, flip and uh, well, we'll get it through. I mean, I guess always the hope. I, I, I think. I think, uh, you know, as you point out, that he's had the Human Life Protection Act passed pass the House, uh, a heartbeat bill passed the Senate. I, I think, you know, where you're going to end up, and they're both going to stare at each other for a while. You know, we've, we've seen this movie before, as we like to say. Uh, but the reality is right now, because of what the state Supreme Court did, essentially you've got, you know, uh, abortion is wide open in South Carolina right now. Wide open. Yep. Uh, and that, you know, is different than the essentially, you know, last year what we were dealing with and what we were dealing with last time the heartbeat bill passed, last time that uh, a more conservative piece of legislation was uh, was attempted. You know, at this point, they've got to do something. Uh, and then the question is, what are they going to do? Is somebody on the Senate side, are they going to take up the Human Life Protection Act and then modify it? Uh, maybe, you know, moving along the scale of, you know, six weeks or something like that. Or in the House, are they going to take the heartbeat bill, and are they going to try to do something to it and send it back so they can get to a conference? At one point, somebody's going to blink because you know the situation right now is just is untenable, it's unacceptable. Uh, you know, we can't walk away with nothing, and that's been something that I've emphasized to legislators on both sides uh, of right. the building. You know, we can't walk away with nothing. Status quo right now, because of the state Supreme Court, is unacceptable. Uh, and, you know, let's not forget, you know, all these guys and gals are going to be on the ballot uh, next year, you know, the House and the Senate are up next year. So that's going to affect the dynamic, in my opinion. What, um, what's going on on the national level? Uh, now, from your position in the, in the RNC, uh, nationally, you've got a pretty good bird's eye view of, of the country and of, of where we are as it relates to getting ready for 2024. So what, what do you think the temperature is right now? I mean, we've got two declare, uh, three, excuse me, three declared um, candidates for the Republican nomination. Uh, how many more do you see coming in, and what do you think about the landscape as it exists right now? Well, you know, if, if, if I was in Las Vegas and my job was to set the line, the over-under line on how many candidates that we'll actually have file, say, to run here in South Carolina anyway in our primary, which will be a year from now, uh, I would put it at eight. I think there will be at least eight candidates that get in this race before it's over with. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and, and that's going to – I mean, look, that's, my, that's half of what we had eight years ago. Remember, we had 17. That's right. Uh, so, you know, I, I think eight's probably a solid number. I'm, of course, former President Trump's in, Governor, former Governor Haley's in. You've got a businessman who's jumped in now. I think Tim Scott is probably as close to a sure thing of getting in as he possibly could be at this point. 
Uh, you're going to have probably a DeSantis, probably a Yunkin, a Mike Pence, a Mike Pompeo. You know, Larry Hogan will probably jump in to try to muddy the waters. You know, the former governor there in, in uh, Maryland, uh, for uh, Governor Christy Noem up in South Dakota. Uh, you know, at the bottom the bottom line there is we've got sort of an abundance of riches on the Republican side here, especially when you compare it to what the Democrats are looking at with, you know, essentially renominating Joe Biden, which is basically what they're increasingly painting themselves into a corner to do. Uh, and as this year rolls on, uh, by contrast, uh, the Republican field is going to look better and better uh, compared to what they're sitting uh, sitting there with on the Democrat side. Uh, you know, but it's going to be a year-long contest. Uh, we'll have probably a dozen debates before it's all over. The first one is set now to be in August in Milwaukee, uh, probably toward the end of the month. Um, and we'll see by that time how many candidates are actually in. And you know, if we have to have, if we can have one debate in one night, or have so many candidates, we have to split it up into two different nights. We don't know yet, but uh, we should know by the end of the summer. Yeah, and I think that uh, you, you know the eight that you're talking about. Uh, I think you're, we're going to have a field larger than that that'll be thinned out by the time they get to South Carolina. I mean, I that'll I so. it may be down to eight or down to uh, that number. Um, I I still I'm, I mean I'm just concerned that the more people that get in, the more it muddies the water for who the likely nominee is going to be. I mean, right now I think you'd have to look if you look at any of the polling, if you look at any of the mood in the country. It's Ron DeSantis or Donald Trump, and it, I, I think it'll probably come down to those two. But at this point, we don't know because so many things can happen in an election process that a dark horse can rise. I mean, you could there, there could be a lot of things that take place. But but I think looking at it right now, according to everything that's available to us, that's going to come down. It's going to come down to those two. Is that a? I agree. Yeah, and, well, I think and, and issues are going to play in this race as well, obviously. You know, and events. You know, these campaigns are always subject to events, and you never know, right. you know, what those events are going to be. Right. Uh, but in the meantime, the sort of the primary before the primary, it's the candidates and targets, the, the early stage, jockeying for potential staff, jockeying for donors, uh, and you know the things that are necessary to really put the campaign on when it kicks into high gear. You know, uh, probably around you know September uh, of this year, um, and you know you're going to have Iowa, New Hampshire, and then Nevada, and then South Carolina's primary will be toward the end of February, and then you got Super Tuesday. And at that point, it becomes prohibitively expensive for you know a lot of candidates to stay in the race. So really, uh, you know, it's almost like South Carolina is the point where the herd really gets thinned. You know, we'll probably be down to two or three viable candidates at that point coming out of South Carolina, in my opinion. Right. Well, uh, Palmetto Family's got a big event coming up March 18th down in Charleston. We have um, a conservative forum that's going to take place down there. Mm -hmm. We have uh, Senator Scott. Mm -hmm. We have uh, Governor Haley. Uh, we have Asa Hutchinson from Arkansas. We've got Senator Marsha Blackburn, Senator John uh, Kennedy. Uh, we have mm -hmm. actually Tulsi Gabbard is going is, is committed to come and speak, uh, Senator Graham. So there's going to be a lot of uh, voices to be heard on that day. And if you're interested, you can go to palmettafamily.org and, and or pick up that information to, um, and to get more information about it. Well, thank you, sir. I appreciate uh, our discussion about South Carolina and the Absolutely. national scene, and we'll look forward to our next discussion. Have a great day. Thank you, sir. You too. Appreciate you. 
Okay, here we go. Thanks for listening to the program today. I want to talk for a little bit about the arguments that are going to be presented at the Supreme Court today on Biden's executive order as it relates to uh, tuition uh, forgiveness. In other words, the student loan forgiveness program, which is right now, it, it looks like it would be north of $400 billion in cost to the federal government. And of course, there are states that are going to lose a lot of money when that happens because they've invested money in trying to help students pay back their loans and that money would um, that that they've invested would be lost. So that that's part of the discussion today at the Supreme Court is what and how is this thing you know going to go down? Um, and we talked about it yesterday at length, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it today. But I want to note a couple of things: the, the the Biden administration argument for the president's authority through executive action to forgive $400 billion in student loan debt comes from a, a, an act that was passed in the wake of 9-11 called the HEROES Act. Uh, and it targets military personnel dis- deployed overseas. That was the purpose of the act. If you were um, you know, the Congress decided to give the president the power to waive or modify certain provisions of the federal student loan statute in order to make provision for those who were called up to serve their country, um, or those, I should say called up, those who volunteered and those who were assigned to be overseas in America's actions against the terrorists after 9-11. And so the, the whole purpose was to bring relief to students that perhaps had taken on debt but were now in a position where they might need to pause the payments of those of that debt because of their service to their country. And that's essentially what the HEROES Act did. But Biden, President Biden says that he has the power to waive and modify these provisions in a way that he could forgive 95% of all student loan debt in the country uh, again, to the tune of about $400 billion. Uh, the statute says that he can waive and modify some of those provisions, but that's a far cry from giving him the power to cancel all student debt. Waive and modify. You can waive provisions. You can modify some of the provisions. But the sweeping power to simply say if you make a certain salary or less than a certain salary, I think it's 120, less than $125,000, you can have $10,000 of your student loan debt forgiven. Uh, combined household is at $250,000. Um, and, and so the statute also says that, or, or when you look at the way the statute is interpreted, you, you see that in order to bring a lawsuit, in order to, to have agreement, a, a grievance, rather, um, you, you have to demonstrate that people have been harmed in some way. And so it's going to be difficult for the Biden administration, although they're going to claim that COVID is the harm that came to these students, you've got to be able to link specific instances of harm to specific students. You can't just make a broad statement and say students were harmed by COVID, so therefore I have the executive power to forgive the loans. No, there's got to be there, there's got to be case cases that are attached to specific people in order for that to be valid, at least legally. 
That's the way the court is supposed to look at it. Now, it's going to be interesting to see today how the arguments go, and we'll talk more about that tomorrow once the arguments are made. Um, there's, there's a piece today at National Review that's by Charles Cook that I thought was interesting. Um, he starts out by saying, here, here is CNN with what might be the worst attempt to convince the Supreme Court to ignore the law that I've ever seen from a major news outlet. And that's saying something, because news outlets want to, they don't want to focus on the law. If they think their argument is not going to be a good one when it comes to the law, then they want to turn it into an emotional issue for the justices. Or they want you at like a magician. I mean, if you've ever been to a magic show, good magicians are not people who have real magic powers. They're people who are able to distract you by having you look over here while they're doing something over here. And that's essentially what CNN's trying to get the Supreme Court to do here. So, so listen to the way that they are, are talking about this. The fate of President Joe Biden's student loan forgiveness program would impact scores of borrowers from a wide array of colleges and socioeconomic backgrounds, and it lies in the hands of nine relatively wealthy people who graduated from a short list of elite private schools. When the Biden administration goes before the Supreme Court Tuesday to defend the program, which would offer up to $20,000 of federal student debt forgiveness to millions of qualified borrowers, they'll be making their arguments to a small group of jurists who were far from being representative of the borrowers that could benefit from the relief. Okay, well, the, the, the question is, all of that may be true, but what does that have to do with the standing and statutory questions that the court has to answer? In other words, it's not a requirement of the Supreme Court that, in, 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 in fact, it's a requirement that they do go to these Ivy League schools. I mean, when people are talking about qualifications for a Supreme Court justice, they want to see a pedigree of legal experience and learning that comes from our best law schools. So now that we've made that requirement for our Supreme Court justices, CNN thinks they can turn around and use their legal experience and knowledge and the fact that they went to these institutions against them in a way to convince them that because they have their degrees and they went to the best schools, then they're not qualified. That Instead of being qualified to understand the law, they're not qualified because they can't identify with the people that the lawsuit is about. If we ever get to that point in the law, we're done. We're finished. Remember Lady Justice? Remember the statue? She holds scales, which represents the balance, and she wears a blindfold, meaning that the scales are supposed to be judged in a way that doesn't take into consideration anything except the law, that we're all equal before the law. And CNN wants these justices to forget that. They want to they want them to think, well, it's not fair that I've had all this privilege. I mean, I, I, I've, I've been to these best institutions, and I'm making judgment on people who don't have the same privilege. No, you're not. You're making judgment on the law, the Constitution, as it's written. The only question before the court is, does the president have the power through executive action to forgive $400 billion worth of student loan debt? And is there a statue that can, you can shove that into that fits within the structure of the Constitution? It has nothing to do with the people 
that and and I know people think, oh, well, that you're you're just mean. Oh, you don't care about the people. No, I care about the people. I care about the people who went to college and paid back their debt. I care about the people who, in good faith, gave these loans that now, or we're just going to say, can magically vanish. Because why? Because it's going to be politically advantageous no, for the because bu- of COVID. Come on, it was because of COVID. It has. It, 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 it's not because of COVID. Uh, this is a political move, pure and simple, and and the and the court has one task before it, and I'm I'm hoping that in fact that they would be insulted by this CNN piece. Here's let me let me read some more of it. Uh, some of the justices had financial assistance to help them attend school. Thomas received a scholarship from Holy Cross College to pay for his undergraduate degree there, while Sotomayor attended Princeton University and Yale Law School on scholarships. What a bum. And they've come from different backgrounds with different politics. Thomas, for instance, grew up in poverty in Pinpoint, Georgia, and is the court's leading conservative justice. And to be sure, students who took out federal loans for undergraduate programs at private schools could be eligible for the relief. In fact, those students took out more debt than their public school counterparts in recent years and at slightly higher rates, according to data from the College Board. Uh, Okay. So, what's that got to do with the law? When it comes to executive orders, nothing can can we say that together? It doesn't have anything to do with the law. We're talking about the people, the background, the socio, the very things that we're not supposed to consider when we consider what the law says, because everybody's supposed to be equal and before the law. Here's some more. In addition to their cozy government salaries, <laughs> can't you? You know, I'd like to know the salary of the person that wrote this piece. Because I don't think there are people on welfare at CNN. But in addition to their cozy government salaries, some of the justices have been paid handsomely through lucrative book deals or teaching gigs. Oh, heavens to Betsy. Uh, they're not people at, at CNN that write books. What a bunch of crooks get making money off writing a book. What right. a bunch what, of just... I, I'm telling you, it, it is a terrible thing to be a capitalist. And that's one of CNN's problems. The Communist News Network here is is having a real problem with just plain old capitalism versus Marxism. Okay? It goes on. Hold they on, per- wait. There's a connection here, because the person who's writing this article probably attended a public university in which they were indoctrinated into that Marxist economic theory. There's got to be a connection probably. there. I'm sure. Anyway, lucrative book deals or teaching gigs, according to their financial disclosures, which provide limited information about their finances, because everybody's finances ought to be an open book. You ought to be. So I, w- I want to see the checkbook register of this person who wrote this article. Because it matters to their credibility in the article. It really does. Those of their spouses and various reimbursements for travel. Among that group is Sotomayor, Gorsuch, Barrett, who have all received over six figures in book royalties or publishing deals in recent years. And Cook writes, so, with a question mark. That's the right question. So, maybe the sole outside source quoted in the piece will provide a rationale. I think it's fair to say that the justice didn't live the experiences of the people that benefit from the president's debt relief program. And it's important for them to go into this case understanding the limits of their own experience and how that might affect their ability to be impartial considering the case, says Mike Pierce executive director of the Student Borrower Protection Center, which urged the justices to uphold the relief program and a friend of the court brief. Oh, it is, of course, as Charles Cook says, 
not fair to say anything of the sort. It's abject nonsense from start to finish. In fact, it's worse than that. It's cheating. The core question before the court is whether the text of the 2003 HEROES Act permits the executive branch to cancel student loans during an emergency. That's it. That's the whole issue. The life experience of the people considering the question is completely irrelevant. What matters is whether Article 1 of the Article 1 branch has granted power that the Article 2 branch is claiming. Everything else is fluff. And when Mike Pierce what Mike Pierce means when he talks about the justice's ability to be impartial is that he doesn't want them to be impartial. If he wanted them to be impartial, he'd be arguing that the HEROES Act grants the statutory authority that the Biden administration is claiming. That's exactly right. If you want impartiality, which is what you claim you want, then what you do is you make a legal argument that the justices can agree on. But you don't want impartiality because you know you're going to lose on that ground. So you decide to attack the justices for who they are, make them feel like that they've got some kind of privilege that the people that they're ruling, they're going to rule about don't have, and that they should be shamefaced if they dare challenge the Biden administration for making life easier for a bunch of people who took out loans and now don't want to pay them back. And they want to blame everybody except taking the personal responsibility. And I'll tell you what, I am offended by that, and I'll tell you why. Because I took out loans to help my children on their behalf. I took out loans to help them get through college. I paid back every penny. And the reason is because I have this concept in my mind that says, you lend me money, I pay you back with interest. I signed that contract. It's a binding deal. I gave my word. And my word means something. And it's the way the system, if, if, if we can just, you know, I, what, what if I didn't want to pay for my house? I mean, what if, what if I just decided, I told the bank, I said, look, I've, you know, I've had a rough time here. It's, uh, I've been oppressed by life. I, I mean, whatever excuses I want to make, I just want you to give me my house and cancel my debt. It's funny that you're actually using that as an example because you're trying to kind of exaggerate it by porting over that same concept into another domain. But they did that with the housing eviction. Moratorium. Oh, I know. You know, so I mean, it's no, like, I was gonna, no, they absolutely. already did that. I was going to make. I was going to make that point. Is you've got two cases already where the oh, Biden administration has been slapped you can't because they exaggerate them. Is no, the thing is you try your best to like make them look ridiculous, and they'll out ridiculous you. So thanks to Charles Cook for this piece at uh, National Review today. It was really good. Uh, I know you're about to write it down, so just tell me who it is. You, you, you know, is Gene? No, not Gene. It is John John Marshall. Okay, John, welcome to the program. Good morning, Dr. Mean. I just wanted to call in. Uh, I know you're switching a different format. I wanted to say thank you, particularly during COVID. I, I feel like you're one of the voices that kept me tied to reality and sane. So I really want to appreciate, uh, send out a word of appreciation to you and, and thanks. And I have a question for you. We've been uh, studying the Beatitudes lately, and, and uh, you know, as we're, we're sort of discussing that and, and what Jesus calls us to do, how do you, in your mind, distinguish, or how would you, how would you explain to someone the distinction between, you know, what we're called to do as Christians and what we're called to do in, in public life? You know, my my sense is that some things Jesus would care about and some things Jesus might not care about, but but we ought to uh, because he was looking for the next world and we're living in this one. Uh, but just want to sort of pick your brain on that and, uh, you know, see, see what your thoughts are generally. I know it's a big topic, but just if you can distill that in any sort of way. Thank you, sir. Well, I appreciate that. Thanks, John. appreciate the call. 
let me uh, begin by saying th- uh, thank you for your appreciation of the show. And for those of you who are listening may not know what he's talking about, the show is changing. Uh, 91.9, 89.7 with Gary's retirement, March 31st. Uh, these two frequencies are going to become music formats. And uh, so on, on April 1st, uh, you're going to tune in over here and you're going to hear some form of Christian music. So in order to keep this show going, um, I'm working on getting a website established that's going to allow me to stream on that website a program that I'll produce out of my house. Uh, it'll be an hour-long show. It's going to be called Truth in Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam. And it will be then a podcast that will be available, just like the podcast is available now. But this will be a one-hour podcast, um, and it will be the show that I do every day and then um, make available. So if you have a smartphone, you can continue to listen to the program just like you're listening on the radio. In fact, you can Bluetooth your smartphone or connect it to your car some way, and you can listen to it on the way to work just like you do now. So I hope you're going to stay with the program. I'll, I'll be giving more information about that as we go. All right, when it comes to this, you know, when I think about the Sermon on the Mount, I always stop and remember that Jesus' words about being salt and light are a part of the Sermon on the Mount. And so I think what you have to do, the call of Christ is to, for us as believers to be salt and to be light in the, the world that, that we live in. We don't put our light under a bushel. We don't allow, allow our saltiness to lose its savor. So and, and that that is a call to every area of life. We're we're as Christian. We as Christians, when we step into culture, we should be transformative in the way that culture looks at itself, um, and and the way we bring the truth, we bring the word of God into that environment. Now, I would say, in in order to do that, we take the beatitudes and we lay them over the command to be salt and light. And we understand that in order to be salt and to be light, which Jesus says that we are, he doesn't say we should um, aspire to those things, but that we have been made those things when we come to know him as Savior. And that the Beatitudes are descriptive of what a person who will be salt and light is going to be. We're going to be humble. Um, we're, 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 you know, we're going to be the type of people who exude the teachings that we find at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and the way that we live them out as salt and light. And I don't think we can separate those. I mean, that's why when I talk about influencing in the public arena, we do it with the aroma of Christ. We don't do it angrily. We don't do it in a disparaging way. We don't minimize or cut down our, the people that we disagree with. We stick to the disagreement. Why do we say this person is wrong? Why do we say this person is right? That's bringing truth in politics and culture rather than being angry and simply reacting or responding in some kind of way that demeans or undermines a person who is created in, in the image of God. Now, do I perfectly live up to that? Nope. Um, I wish I did. 
But I fail sometimes in that because I get angry and I get frustrated and I tend to channel the flesh rather than the spirit. I mean, I, I you know, the Bible tells us walk in the spirit and we won't fulfill the lust or the desire or the expression of the flesh. But once we once we allow the flesh to take the lead in that, then the spirit and though all the good things that come from the power of the Holy Spirit are set aside and only the bad things that the flesh produces are left over. But so what I hear you saying though is that we basically engage in our politics in the same exact way that we engage in our ministry and our family and our career. Yeah. We do it with honesty, we do it with integrity, we do it with peacemaking, we do it with the same exact principles that govern our behavior in every other sphere. Sure. Christians I, I mean one thing that's bothered you that I've heard you talk about over the last decade or so is when people is when Christians believe that there's a different set of values that govern their political interactions right. than the ones that govern their other relationships. You know, it's okay to bend the truth it's okay to make crooked deals. It's it okay is to not. go and, into certain yeah. places and make certain types of arrangements whenever you get into politics, because, hey, it's politics. Well, and that's what Marxism teaches. Look, Marxism teaches that the system has to be destroyed. Mm. And to destroy it, you can engage in any behavior that you wish, because your end goal is to de- destroy the system. And if you have to lie to accomplish that, then lie. If you have to, whatever you have to do, if you have to oppress people, if you have to take away some people's right to speak, their religious freedom, if that has to be suppressed, suppress it. If you've got to shut them up when they're speaking ways that you don't agree and you only want people who agree with you to be able to speak, if that furthers the goal of upending the system, then by all means, engage in it. But even Christians if you're a can Christian have, and you say, well, I have this noble goal of conforming now, culture to Christ, right. you know, and so now, now I'm going to behave in ways that are unChrist-like in order to achieve this goal of a Christ-like culture? Listen to this statement. Vice never brings about virtue. You cannot have a virtuous outcome if vice or, uh, or sin or the path that you choose to reach that virtuous end is littered with disobedient, uh, disobedience to God's Word. You will not land on the place that you want to land if you do that, and too many people do not realize that, I'm, I'm afraid. And they step into politics thinking that they can behave in any manner they wish. Uh, John, I, I don't know, you're probably gone, but uh, anyway, thanks for the call. It was a great conversation. I was speaking in to um, our one message group today, and I just put the last two verses that I read in my quiet time today. It was from the Psalm, Psalm 54, verses 6 and 7. And it says, um, With a free will offering I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. And I just simply said, I know for me I need a daily reminder of who God is and what he's promised in his word. I'm thankful because God is good. He's delivered me from, and often, I put in parentheses, and oftentimes through, trouble. Triumph over enemies is to triumph over the lies of the enemy with the truth of God. And I, 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 need, to, I need to remember that. My offering that I bring to the Lord is out of a heart of thanksgiving because of the things that he has done uh, and because he is, he is worthy of my praise and my offering. Saying it that way kind of reminds me of John's question of, you know, how do we affect the type of changes that we want in public life in our culture 
And it's almost more like if you look inside and start becoming the person that Christ wants you to be, either he'll change your attitude toward the things that are going on around you and make you okay with, you know, I mean, you think about Christians in other countries that don't enjoy the level of, of liberty and freedom that we do. Right. Well, they aren't, you know, champing at the bit and, 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 and grinding their teeth at the government. They just accept the fact this is the way that I'm going to be a Christian. I'm going to be a Christian, right. you know, and so God will either change well, you or else he'll change the culture. That's one of the most, when I was going to, on mission trips Mm -hmm. uh, to Romania and um, uh, Moldova in the 1990s, Mm. it was right after the fall of the Berlin Wall, the end of communism. I mean, communism was was collapsing everywhere. Mm -hmm. And we were being allowed into these places. And what I discovered was a... um, you know, a pure church, a church that was emerging from under horrible persecution, and yet they were focused on the joy that comes from being in the Lord. I mean, I, pastors who spent time in the gulag because and were beaten, um, some were affected for the rest of their life physically because of what they went through, but they joyfully uh, were accepting these circumstances because of they were serving God and being faithful to Him in the midst of those terrible times. And I think that there's a lesson, a huge lesson for us to learn in in that here today, uh, 2023 in America. Uh, yes, Christianity is on the outside of the culture somewhat. Uh, we've been sort of kicked to the curb because. The, the question now is, are our morals really moral? You know, we, we really haven't been questioned like that before. I mean, you know, our morality says that sexuality is a gift from God and that sexual expression takes place in the context of marriage between two people who become one flesh, and that becomes an, uh, uh, an example to the world of Christ's love for the church. Um, and sexuality is determined by God, who is the creator and the maker of all things. All of those things are now in question. There's a great piece at the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics that talks about this, that reminds us as Christians that we need to go back and begin to stress and emphasize the 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 generous nature of Christianity, the goodness of the, God's design, the goodness for the of world. God. Yeah, I right. totally agree. Right, that's right. Yes, and we hold to that. Yes, even and and then we back that up though with a generous spirit. Mm-hmm. That is, we you know we wash the feet of the poor, we mm-hmm. bind their wounds, we uh, step into the arena and care for those that the world has abandoned. And we and we know. do that. We engage in that compassionate Christianity without compromising, though. Right. The you, thou shalt not. You you hold you hold to the truth. Yep. And at the same time, you would bind the wounds of those that would be your enemy, mm-hmm. even in in that. And I mean, an enemy. I I say in terms of the way that they might come against you. But understanding them does not mean approving of them. That, you know, you can right. look at, at a drug addict and say, you know what, you had a really really hard upbringing. I mean, you were abused, you were neglected, you didn't have a lot of chances, and I understand why you are where you are. I mean, it just, it almost feels inevitable, doesn't it? Well, cr- but that doesn't mean I approve of where they are, Yeah. but I well, can understand. And Christianity, you know, the thing about uh, Christianity today in, in the world that we live in, 
we're being asked to celebrate, approve, yes. and then celebrate. Yes. You know, it's not just a matter of this is my lifestyle, um, and I'm and I'm going to leave it live it over here. Now, if you're a Christian, to be considered part of society, you have to approve of that lifestyle, and then you've got to take the next step. You've got to celebrate it. You have to t- speak of it as if it's a, a wonderful thing that a person has decided that they're a female instead of a male. And we don't have that option nope. as Christians. What we celebrate is God's Word and the truth. Uh, we celebrate those things. We celebrate the ability to be set free from the bondage of things that were are destructive in our in our life. And we have to I mean, you know, I care about every person that comes that God places in my path. Even the icky ones. If, if, well, regardless of but, the decisions it, it, they've that's, made that's, or that whatever. That was what we got wrong in the nineties was we looked at these people doing these these really uh you know I'm just going to say it, icky things, you know, and it's just like I have yeah. no attraction to a male. Okay? I have none and I can't understand why a guy would want to be attracted I, I to a that. guy. Yeah, and right. so I can look at that and say, ooh, that's disgusting. That's icky. You know? And that was all I had to say on the subject in the 90s. You know? And now I look at that person and I say, you know what? You're no more or less broken than I am. Right. And, and well, both of us are broken, and Jesus can fix that. Well, because when, when you look at a person and you describe them uh, by the whatever sin has beset them, yes. then it causes you to not see... The, the love of God that wants to set that person free. Is that what happened and in, that's, to, to the Jesus people, is all they could see was just the, well, the icky? Uh, well, the, the, if, when it comes to the Jesus movement, I think a lot of people, they only could see the, the fact that these people were not like us. Hmm. And therefore, being not like us, they how can they embrace the same thing that we do hmm. or, or that we have? You know, the church and the church has dealt with this since the book of Acts. Mm. I mean, you have the Jerusalem Council. Why? To define what the Gentiles' role was going to be and whether the Gentiles were going to be accepted into the church. And, you know, Paul had to show up and say, look. Pretty short um, list. You know, here's here's what is happening in these people's lives. Mm. We can't deny what God is doing, even though, you know, our heritage, our background, our Everything about the way that we were raised screams that these people are unclean and that they can't participate in the same way with God that we can. But God demonstrates that that's not true. We can't ignore the fact that these people are experiencing the same thing that we experienced when we came to know Jesus. Mm -hmm. And because that's a fact— then we have to accept who they are. So what do we do as Christians then when Justin Bieber comes out and says, you know, I profess faith in Christianity, or, or you know, Kanye West comes out and says, you know, I'm a Christian now, or, you know, if it's, if well, it, you, you could go down the list. Damar Hamlin, you know, comes out and inspires us all to pray publicly, you know, and we're like, oh, he must be a Christian hero. And then the next game, he sees a touchdown for him from his team and tweets out OMFG on his Twitter. Yeah, yeah. It's like, so do, can we look at a guy and say, you can't OMFG... And Christian, you can't do those two things at the same time. And then some people would look at me and say, well, who are you to judge? You don't know well, his heart. No, 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 no. But here's here's the thing that I would—I don't know him, okay? Mm-hmm. I would have to know him to know the dynamics that are at work in those two things being present at the same time. Hmm. Is it possible that he is an immature believer who has a genuine faith in Christ but has never been discipled or taught 
what the change that comes is how it's going to be reflected by the standard that's set by God's word. It could be that. And it also could be that he's never truly been born again. I mean, look, Christianity is a change. It's, it's, it, you know, Stephen Curtis Chapman had a song back in the, I guess it was in the 90s. You know, it's all about it's the change. It's a Christian contemporary song, though. It's, probably it no it is a Christian, and you probably don't know it. But it's all about the change. It's all about the difference. It's all about his grace. It's all about deliverance. Um, and, and I'm just thinking of some of the lyrics mm-hmm. here. You know, and he was talking about the fact, he said, but he was looking at it from a different standpoint. He said, you can have a Jesus bumper sticker on your car. You can have a one-way magnet on your refrigerator, but it's not about those expressions unless you've truly experienced the change that comes with a heart that's been made clean by the blood of Jesus. That's going to make you desire. You you don't go out and do good things in order that God is happy because you're doing good things after you become a believer. You go out and do th- good things because you are happy because of what God has done for you. You want to be obedient. You desire to please him. You, you want to um, live the life that you've been set free to live. Um, that's part of the change. And, uh, you know, I fail at that. I fall short, and I have to ask for forgiveness, and I have to try to grow in my faith and seek God to take those things out of my life that don't belong, that have no place anymore in the life of a redeemed person. Uh, But you have to desire that. And people people who embrace Jesus get baptized and then go back and say, well, I'm going to take Christianity, but I'm not going to take the part that talks about sexuality, or I'm not going to take the part that talks about this because I don't like that part. I'm sorry. Uh, coming to Christ and to God is a surrender. It's not a smorgasbord. You you don't get to walk in and, and cafe pick, buffet pick what you're going to take and what you're going to leave behind. You leave behind everything and you embrace everything that Jesus is. And that change begins to take place in your heart and your life as you do that. All right, we're uh, we're about out of time, so we'll be back tomorrow. It'll be me and Austin again tomorrow. Yeah, I enjoyed the doing the show the with you today. It was yeah, nice to I did too. I, yep. I really, yeah, I miss that. Uh, you make me think, and I actually make more sense when you're here. So that's a good thing. We will see you tomorrow at 7 o'clock. And don't forget, starting April 1st, this program is going to be available online through a website. I'll be telling you more about that as we get closer to it. God bless you, and have a good day.